This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to Open Book, where I talk to some of the most interesting and brilliant minds in our world today. In this show, I'll bring on guests in business, politics, entertainment, and more to go deep into a piece of their work, whether it's a highly anticipated book, an in-depth feature story, or an opinion piece that has captured my attention. We'll dig into why it matters to you and how their work is shaping our future. On today's episode, I talk with senior political correspondent at the New York Times, Maggie Haberman. There have been countless books written about President Trump, his own memoir, biographies detailing his rise and fall, mental health assessments by psychiatrists. There's even one by me out there somewhere. But none, none were more anticipated than Maggie Haberman's, whose relentless reporting captivated all of us during Trump's four years in office. Maggie's book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America chronicles his life and its meaning from his rise in New York City to his diminished post-presidency and everything in between. We discuss making sense of Trump, what makes him tick, and how to really get in his mind, his upbringing and the influence of his father, Fred Trump. I open up about my own regrets supporting the former president. My ego really did get the better of me. The events of January 6th, my birthday, I might add, and the America we live in today. So, Maggie, welcome. I look forward to this, obviously. I read your book. Why Con Man? Why did you pick Confidence Man for the title? Uh, there were a bunch of titles that I was thinking about. One that I had had for a while as a working title was Damage, because... Trump is damaged and he has brought damage to others. Ultimately, Confidence Man was a suggestion that came up from folks I was working with. I frankly liked it because I think that it, A, it has a double meaning. Obviously, confidence is something that Trump tries to project, but you know, the literal meaning of a con man is someone who takes something from other people. And I think that Trump has a very long history of doing that. Well, I mean, it's a couple of things I took away from the book. First of all, I wish you had written the book before the campaign started in 2016. But of course, you weren't able to do that. But if you had done that, it was a very big warning. And it's just interesting that uh, the book's out there now. And there's still a very large group of people that support President Trump and sure. will vote for him in the Republican primary. But the book is a Surgeon General's warning label on his personality you go back to Fred Trump and the older brother, Fred Trump Jr. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want you to tell us a little bit about those relationships. And also, there's a fascinating story in your book, uh, which I highlighted. It was about uh, there was only one picture in the Oval Office uh, behind mm-hmm. the resolute desk. That was him 
a picture of his dad. People said, hey, man, you got to put other pictures up there. Explain the whole dynamic there. So Fred Trump, there is no Donald Trump without Fred Trump, literally, and, and also, you know, scenically. Fred Trump is is constantly on Donald Trump's shoulder in one form or another. He was a he was an effective businessman. He was a much more effective businessman than his son, who is a self-promoter and, and an effective brander, but not not a businessman the same way. But Fred Trump cut corners. And, you know, according to everyone who I know who spoke to him, you know, he, he did not undermine his son in public, but definitely did in private and was constantly pushing his son, you know, in terms of killers and losers. And, you know, you've got to be a winner. And Yvonne Trump had a line in her autobiography in which she described Fred Trump as a brutal father. And I think that's probably as, as good a description as you can get of him. And I think that left its mark on Donald Trump. And I think, you know, there was a striking line, too, to your point about him only having that picture of Fred that he gave to my colleague Jason Horowitz in an interview about his dad in the 2016 campaign when Jason asked what Trump's father would have thought of him running. And Trump said he absolutely, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it was, he absolutely would have allowed me to run, which was a really striking comment from a 70-year-old man. So I think it tells you a lot about how Trump sees himself and how he still sees himself as secondary to his dad. You know, I mean, listen, we both have had personal experiences with Donald Trump. My experience with him, which is not going to shock you and you and I have talked about this, is remarkable insecurity. The Remarkable, like somebody that- You've talked about that a lot, yeah. yeah, Somebody that rises to the presidency, okay, just the the bullying and the need to try to tell people that they're smarter than the other person. I mean, insecure people do that. I'm smarter than you. Let me try to prove it to you. If I can't prove it to you, let me try to intimidate or bully you. Is the insecurity coming from that relationship with Fred Trump? Is that what, is that ultimately what happened? He just brutalized the kid to the point where the kid just felt unsteady and unsure of himself. I think that Trump comes to the world with his own pathology. So I think I don't I don't want to strictly attribute it to Fred Trump, but I absolutely think that Fred Trump undermined him, set up a competition between him and Freddie, his older brother, who you mentioned before, set up a paradigm where everything was about competing factions against one another, which, you know, you experienced firsthand. And we've talked about that, too. That's how he treats the entire world as if it is, you know, and and as I write, that's a that's a way of, of behaving that might work in a business. Sometimes it certainly is not effective in a family. And so I think that he, this constant feeling that he, he is not getting his due and that he needs to prove that he is worthy traces, uh, I don't think exclusively, but pretty heavily to his father. So I, th- I finished your book and I say to myself, okay, I'm going to write these things down and I'm going to ask Maggie about them in the future. Okay. So I finished the book. Here are the things that I wrote down. It was a perfect storm. And what do I mean by that? The country was looking for new leadership. The country felt that the establishment political parties, at least a good 25% of the country felt that the establishment political parties were not working for them. And so you had this perfect storm where in comes this avatar for white, middle and lower class anger. He's going to be their avatar, the stick of finger in the eye of all forms of the establishment. And then you have the failure of the Clinton campaign, the secretary Hillary Clinton campaign. Am I right about that? Is it a perfect storm? Is he a manifestation of what's going on in America? Did he help contribute to it? Like the New York Times reported, what did I get wrong? When I closed your book, I was like, okay, perfect storm. He comes into it at the perfect time, wins the presidency by a nose, and then he wreaks this type of destruction and manifestation of his own self-hatred on the rest of us. 
I think one asterisk that I would put on there is yes, I think that the the Clinton campaign made some some strategic errors and 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 bad assumptions, but I also think that you can't underestimate the degree to which sexism is a real thing. And I think cut against her, a lot of people, you know, she's a she's a polarizing figure. She has been for thirty years. I think that it was underestimated the degree to which people were going to view her negatively and through a negative lens to some extent, regardless of what she did. A certain sizable chunk of the population, I don't think she helped herself in certain areas, but. As for the rest, I think you're right. What I tried showing is that Trump is who he always has been. He is this very shallow, insecure celebrity status seeker who in a country that is increasingly celebrity driven, found his moment in the post Tea Party era. He harnessed that anger when trust in institutions after a series of national traumas had really left a mark on a lot of voters. He told people he was going to fight and he was branded as this successful mm-hmm. businessman, Anthony, that he just yeah. simply was not. The, the your fiber you know, you from New York was pretty different than what the rest of the country believed about him beginning from the but 80s. New Yorkers like me made a decision to support him. Okay. And I can give mm-hmm the cognitive dissidence, but I'm not going to. I supported him very plaintively because he was the Republican nominee. I had worked in the Republican Party Mm -hmm. for 20 years and I was like, okay, I'm going to be loyal. I'm going to support him. Why do you think so many people did that? You know, I talked to Mark Esper about it and I saw Mark Esper at the uh, Army-Navy game. As I walked through the door, Bill Mm -hmm. Barr was there with Mark. Mark sees me, Bill sees me. And they said, oh, I didn't realize that we're here for the Trump fired person support network, you know, and I sort of laughed. I said, well, I got fired way before, before you guys did. It's true. It was, it was not yet fashionable. No, I, it was a pretty sensationalist thing. Then it became right. commonplace. But why did we support him in your mind? Like why, why did somebody like Mike, Mike Pompeo, Mark Esper, myself, Bill Barr, General Kelly, you know, I'm more interested in your answer. I think my answer, I think my answer is distorted because, you know, you know that there's a very famous line that people remember things the way they want to and with the way they need to, as opposed to the way they really happen. So uh, I think my answer is perhaps less objective than yours. You know, my, my answer, my simple answer is I supported him because I was loyal to the party. When he went rogue, I decided to ignore a lot of it under the theory that his policies were better than the other person's policies and so let's ignore that. But ultimately, I have to own that because the license for hatred, the acrimony, the racial tension that he caused, uh, as I've said to Esper and Pompeo, Bill Barr, others were all accomplices to that. And we could say it by we did it by accident or we did it proactively. But we you know, and I've offered my apology to people for doing that. It it is what it is. But ultimately, I think it was uh, a power trip. If we're being honest with ourselves, it's ego that helped influence our decision making. And I don't care who who you are, you have the opportunity to work in the White House. You know, I was a blue collar kid, built some successful businesses. I can now work for the American president. I, I was overly tempted by that. I think that's ultimately the most honest answer I can give. But I'm more asking generically, you've interviewed a lot of these people. Why did they go work for them? I think that for the group that you just put forward, and I think the more extended group of people who work for Donald Trump, who uh, either were fired or don't feel good about it or took issues with him. Look, I think that for a lot of people, it's the same reason that you cited at the outset. They, they tended to skew Republican and he's a Republican. He was the Republican nominee. He was the Republican president. So I think that's a piece of it. I think in the case of General Kelly, I think it's slightly different. I think military figures are slightly different in terms of how they view service when they get asked by a commander in chief to do something. I think Bill Barr has a very expansive view of 
presidential authority. And, and, you know, we right. saw that play out in, in various in various ways. And I think that was part of what appealed to him about coming back. You know, Pompeo, I think, is uh, one of the most ambitious politicians I've mm-hmm. ever seen in my life. And I think he thought right. this was helpful to him. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people who worked for Trump. They thought that it wasn't just, you know, it's a chance to work for a president, which is what you were looking right. at. It. So yes, that's a personal point. But I think a lot of folks thought they were going to get something out of it. And what they got out of it was January 6th. Yeah, that happens to be my birthday, by the way, which is there's some irony. There. Wow. I share the same birthday as Eric Trump. So on his 37th birthday, his father was trying to overthrow the government. And on my 57th birthday, I was like, oh my God, this guy is really as stupid as I thought he was. But here we are. Three things you say in the book, which I like. I mean, I like so many things in the book, but these are things about his moods and his behavior. I'm going to read them back to you, okay? He had a couple of moves. He would shift blame, the quick lie, the counterattack, the misdirection, the performative anger, sort of this angry outburst to push people back. He understood the power of that seat about as well as anybody. You know, when when you're sitting in the Oval Office with him, I don't care who you are. He's the president. You're not. It can be intimidating to people. Tell us about that. Tell us about how you dealt with it as a journalist. And tell us about how, you know, I mean, he's called you every different name in the book, yet he still calls you like you're his psychotherapist. So tell us about that whole thing. Well, so one thing, I haven't talked to him since September 2021. And that was uh, my third interview for the book. In February of last year, I reported that he was flushing documents down toilets. And that was yeah, he issued a statement calling me a maggot, and that was the last time I talked to him. And he has, you know, sort of sent me cryptic messages or that are alleged to be from him through various people. But but that's uh, that's it. He he is an intimidating figure to a lot of people. And to your point about how he would use the office, the office was almost a set piece to that. One of the things I talk about in the prologue is just his bullying impulse. I talk about it in the epilogue in the, at the end of the book too. So it was perfect for him. It was a, it was a perfect match. You know, I remember an interview that my colleague Glenn Thrush and I did with him. And I think it was April of 2017. And we walked in and there were something like 12 aides in the room. And he was flanked on one side by Gary Cohn and, and Reed Cordish and this one and that one. And then Jared Kushner. And then, and all these people, the vice president walked in at one point, Rance Priebus walked in at one point. And, and you got the sense that it was rolling heavy. And it was meant to, it was, it was, it was stage directing. So I think anyone who has been in his presence has experienced that. I also think that anyone who's been in his presence has experienced, as you have, the salesman side of him, where he's trying to charm or woo you. I have certainly experienced multiple times asking him a question on something and having him just lie about it and and try to get out of it that way. He is, I think that most reporters, certainly in Washington, which is not exactly a place known for its a a deep brand of honesty, but I don't think any Washington-based reporter had covered somebody who lied about things both big and small the way that Trump does. And I think it was very challenging for the press corps to to try to pin him down on any manner of things. Let's move quickly through this interview and go right to January 6th. Was January 6th surprising to you? No, it was not. It was shocking, um, but not surprising. It's shocking, not surprising, right? You know, so someone like a Michael Cohen said it was going to happen. People asked me, I said, well, look, he's not going to ever concede. Mm-hmm. He said in 2016 mm-hmm. that if he lost, he would declare fraud. That's right. That's right. And and, and the Iowa caucuses were fake, according to him, in 2016 because right. he lost them. Yeah. Right. Right. And of course, him on tape in the bus grabbing people by the blank, he then went on to say that that wasn't Yeah, he him. said they were investigating. He told, he told the senator that they were investigating whether that was really him. I mean, it's really amazing to me the degree to which people were around him were, when you see this in the January 6th 
House committees work and, and all of our reporting, people were aware of exactly what was going on in the White House. And people were hoping he would averting their gazes, hoping he would let it go, hoping it would stop. So I, I broke the story about that crazy Oval Office meeting on December 18th, 2020, that you've seen a lot of video about in those House hearings. Right. And I broke it on December 19th. And I got a call from a, a Senate Republican staffer who said to me, are we going to have a problem? Actually, I think I had a text. Are we going to have a problem with a peaceful transfer of power? And I said, yes, you are. Like, that's should be very visible here. And the person explained to me that Kushner and Meadows were telling GOP leadership that, you know, everything was going to be fine. Trump was going to concede. It was going to be OK. Or he was, you know, everything was going to be OK. It was so not <laughs> to be OK. And so it was not surprising to me. And it was not surprising to me. Also, another story that that I helped break and that was cited in the report was Annie Carney and I reported on January 5th that Pence had told Trump he wasn't going to do what Trump wanted in terms of dismissing the results in the Electoral College uh, certification. And Trump had put out a statement saying we were wrong. Pence and I see this the same way. Trump obviously knew he was saying something that was not true. So no, I was not surprised because Trump was fighting this up until the very last minute. And 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 by the way, Anthony, so much of all of our reporting from real time held up in, in what we saw from the committee, but that's a side note. Right. Well, well, no, listen, I mean, one of the reasons why uh, I got on the wrong side of him was uh, my feelings about the press. And, and by the way, I think I have license. I've been, I've been lit up by the press. I've been grinded by late night comedy. I actually don't care. I think it's part of the process if you're going to go into politics. And so, you know, I wrote an op-ed saying that the press is not the enemy of the people. It was in the Hill in April of 2019, he went ballistic on me and told me I was no longer on his team, which that was fine. But the question I have for you is why is he still all your reporting? The most recent report today where, you know, you're writing in the New York Times today that he knows that the election wasn't rigged and he knows that he lost the election. We all know that he knows that. And yet he perpetuates this lie. Why are people still kowtowing and supporting him? Why is there no backbone leadership? Why didn't McCarthy and McConnell and others say, hey, you know what? This is absolutely wrong. And why? Is it really just his political base and his power? Is that the reason? I mean, yeah. there are no principles and there's no courage at all to stand up for this wrong-headed and illegal behavior. Do you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm? Are you a Larry David person? I, I do, yes. I, how could you not? I mean, yeah. I'm a New Yorker. Jews and Italians see the world very similarly. There's, yes. an, there's an episode where he has a cast member from the show Survivor and a Holocaust survivor at, at a dinner. I think it might have been a Seder. And they're, they're yelling at each other and fighting. And somebody knocks over a glass of wine and red wine, and it gets all over the tablecloth. And Larry David's mother-in-law says, somebody get a sponge. And she just sits there and says, somebody get a sponge. And he says, why don't you get a sponge? And... To me, that is how so many people have approached Donald Trump is someone else will be the person who deals with him. I don't have to, but someone right. will. And so in the case of McCarthy, yes, it's about the base. It's about McCarthy's own ambitions. We talked about ambition before in terms of all you know various officials. You talked about it for yourself. McCarthy has wanted to be House Speaker for as long as I can remember. And he almost had it once before and lost it because of an uprising from the right. Right. And also his own behavior, you know, his own behavior caught him. He's also, you know, he got caught on Hannity, you know, interview, explained 
the diabolical nature of what they did to Hillary Clinton, things like that. I mean, you know, look, Kevin was a friend of mine. I consider Kevin a friend. He's spoken at the Salt Conference. Mm-hmm. You can see me on his donor list. I think that people like him and Stefanik, they've totally morphed themselves. They've disfigured themselves for some reason. You know, I guess it's uh, you, you really learn not to be overly cynical, but you really learn what people are about in politics when they when they do these things. But let's talk about you for a second, okay? Have you ever had a relationship with anybody that you've covered like the relationship that you have with Donald Trump? Okay, you know, less there's antipathy in the relationship, but there's a bizarre attraction of Donald Trump to you, almost like, you know, the New York Times, or whatever it might be, to get their support or to put a charm offensive on you or the New York Times. You know, he's calling you at all hours of the night. Ever had a relationship like that? I re- so I reject the term relationship because it suggests some kind of give and take. He's a figure who I cover. I have never experienced a figure I cover who is so uniquely obsessed with the press. I'm an interjector. I do like that because I shouldn't have said relationship. I should have said interaction because people that tell me they're friends with Donald Trump, I'm like, you're not friends with Donald right, Trump. Right, okay? right. Donald Trump doesn't really, he doesn't really, he doesn't really have friends. And so number one, and number two, he is uniquely obsessed with the New York Times. And that's what it's about with me, just to be clear. You know, he is obsessed with the paper to a degree that I have never seen in any official, you know, if anybody wants to understand how he feels about the New York Times, go back and listen to an episode of the New York Times podcast, The Daily from February. February 2019, where he's having this back and forth with our publisher, A.G. Salzberger. And A.G. is literally talking about really important issues like, hey, your language is being used by despots around the globe to crack down on press freedoms. And Trump keeps saying, I think I'm entitled to a good story from my paper. And that really tells you all you need to know about how he sees things um, versus, you know, how the free press sees things. And he just doesn't understand what the free press does. He has no clue. I asked him during that same meeting what what he thinks our role is. And I think he said to cover things accurately and fairly, which is what we, what that's our objective, but that's not why we exist. So no, I, I've never experienced anything like this. And also, you know, look, he's not the first person to get upset about my coverage. Anthony, I've, Rudy Giuliani used to yell at us in the, in the blue room at City Hall all the time when I was covering him as mayor. You're in the NFL and you get a concussion. Okay, you're in the NFL. I mean, you know, you're, you're in politics. You're going to get concussed by the journalists. Okay, it's just the way it happens. But do you think that uh, you're not a shrink? But I got to ask you this question. Because <laughs> I am I not. That is true. But I do think he thinks you are. But do you think in his quiet moments, when I see Donald Trump and I think of him in his quiet moments, I see self-loathing. Do I have that right? So A, I think he treats all of us like we're his psychiatrists, as I write. So I just want to make that very clear. I don't think that he has one. I think he uses all of us for therapy and I'm not sure how many quiet moments he has. I will say I spoke to a lot of people who knew him in the 1990s and the 2000s who said that they believe that he is, there's not a whole lot of love for self there, that there's a lot of a lot of internal self-denigration. Now, whether they're just grafting sort of normal behavior for somebody who's behaved so self-destructively onto him, uh, it's hard to tell. I, I, don't, I don't think he's given to enormous self-reflection. So I have two last questions for you. Okay, you ready? Ready. You wrote at the end of your book that when you interviewed him after the election loss, he seemed shrunken. Mm-hmm. Elaborate on that. I, I think we've seen a steady a steady shrinkage of him, right? I mean, I think when I first went to see him was March of 2021. He just seems small. And and some of that is just not being president anymore. You know, I mean, I, I remember the first time that I saw Bill Clinton after the presidency and he seemed smaller. The, the two post-presidents who seemed the happiest in my viewing in, in modern history were Obama and Bush W. They both seemed really happy to leave D.C. I think that Bill Clinton did not like leaving the stage. I 
think Donald Trump certainly did not. But he seemed, he just seemed diminished. He didn't seem to know what to do with, he's not pressing the red button for the Diet Coke anymore. He can't command an army. He can't go fire up Marine One. It, it just, he just seemed small. And, and I think that we have seen him seeming progressively smaller over time. It doesn't mean he won't still potentially be the nominee for president. He, he may, you know, I mean, somebody has to beat him. But assuming that he stays in the race, it, there there are only a few people I can see doing that. But he, but yet he does not seem dominant the way he once did. OK, la- last question. Who covers him well? That's a good question. Let's say Maggie Avery covers him the best, but who covers him well besides you? Well, thanks. But uh, I think Jonathan Swan and Josh Dossie uh, and Mike Bender are all really, really, really strong reporters on the Trump beat. I think Jonathan Swan's Off the Rails series was one of the best pieces of yeah. journalism about the, the final days of Trump. Very good. When is the payback coming? Uh, that's a good question. I think a couple months. It'll be easier. It'll be less heavy to carry around. So, you know, look at it that way. I will listen. It was an awesome book, Confidence Man, The Making of Donald Trump and the Breaking of America. People will be studying your book, Maggie. It'll be 50 years from now. It'll be in a political science curriculum somewhere for sure. I appreciate uh, so that. Congratulations on the book. I look forward to many more years of your successful reporting, but hopefully it won't be about a future President <laughs> Trump, which is you know, not out of the question. We it's not. Know that. No, people who think people who think that it's out of the question are are kidding themselves. Yeah, they're not they're not reading the situation properly. But that's right. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I mean, I'll work hard to make sure that it doesn't, as will many other people. But it could happen. Thank you so much. Thank and, you. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on Open Book. Thanks, Anthony. One thing I will say about Maggie in my whole time with her, she was incredible at detailing sources and she was incredible at checking her facts. Trump knew that about her, which is why he was always on the phone talking to her. You know, he had this image of the New York Times. No matter what anybody says, the New York Times, in his mind, was the paper of record, even though he had a love-hate relationship with it. He also had a love-hate relationship with Maggie. He wanted Maggie to like him and he wanted Maggie to accept him. And by the way, if he was a decent guy because of her objectivity, she probably would have, but he's not a decent guy. She made that very, very clear, not by her opinions, frankly, but by her facts, her objective, triply sourced facts. I said to expect the whole mooch when you tune into an open book. Now, to really meet the whole mooch, there's many people you can talk to. But as my fellow Italians know, there's only one person that will tell you exactly how it really is. She may be the person I am today, and I certainly wouldn't have had any of my successes without her. She can tell you about the good and the bad and will probably light my ass up along the way. So I'd like to introduce you to the star of the show, my mom, the one and only Marie Scaramucci. Ma, welcome to Open Book. I'm saying Ma just like Martin Scorsese would say it, right? Ma, welcome to Open Book. Yeah. Let me ask you this question, Ma. All right. What do you think of Trump, Ma? Go ahead. He just says things out of his mouth without thinking. He doesn't have the class that you have. All right. But what what did you think about the time I was in the White House, though, right? Remember when the reporters were coming at you? Yeah, well, I think he was jealous of the way you spoke because he doesn't have that talent. 
That's why he didn't want you there. He could have kept you there, but he didn't keep you there because he was jealous of the way you talk. All right. And well, he let's... doesn't have that ability. All right. All right. Ma. I appreciate you saying that. You're my mother. So obviously you love me. But let me just ask you this. OK, <laughs> when I was fighting with him, did that surprise you that I had the balls to go after the president of the United States on live television, given the way I got raised? Wow. Absolutely not. You worked in a motorcycle shop, which was the ability to learn how to deal with all kinds of people, the upper crust and, and, and the regular people. And you knew how to you know how to deal with people. That's your talent. All right. But like you didn't think that like him starting to shit with me was going to stop me from going after him. Right. Absolutely not. You raised me, Ma. So what, ha- what happened? What happened? I, I know that you can hold your own with anybody. Anybody. That's the way you were raised. All right, but what happened in my upbringing? Though was it was it working at the motorcycle shop? Was it? Uh, I, th- I think was that it? the motorcycle shop gave you chutzpah. Okay, chutzpah. You, know, right. uh, you had an which is an Italian was, word for balls, right, Ma? It's an Italian chutzpah. Is an Italian word for bravery? Bravery. But you were you were like a star. You always had something that other kids didn't have. They used to call you Moses. Okay. You were like a straight shooter, Anthony, as a child. Right. When you were beaten up by Billy Whiteley and your grandmother said, I'm going to watch you from the door, and you went at him like a nut, you had the ability to defend yourself. That's a true story. She sent me back out. He punched me in the face. I came in crying, and Nana said, are you nuts? You're going to go out there right now and punch him right in the face, right? Remember what I did to him, right? Absolutely. Never touched you again. Right. So you, that was like yeah, you got to learn how to handle bullies, obviously. Right? Mm-hmm. That was the beginning of you not having a fear. All right, Mom. I, I got to go. Uh, that's my Did mama. Did I answer you right? Yes, Ma. I love you, Ma. That's my mama. I love we're you gonna, very much, we're gonna talk. We're going to talk to you once a week. We're going to add you to the podcast because it's so entertaining, all right? All right, I love you, Ma. All right, I all right I'll talk you to you later. Much, all right, all right, bye. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and that was Open Book. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, and make sure you hit follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. While you're there, please leave us a rating or review. If you want to connect with me to chat more about the discussions, it's at Scaramucci on Twitter. It's also at Scaramucci on Instagram. You can text me at plus one nine one seven nine zero nine two nine nine six. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think and who you'd like to see on our show next. I'll see you back here next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. 
From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.